BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, July 15th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by harrys.com. Harry's was founded just two years ago and is already disrupting the shaving industry by offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Plus, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use our coupon code INQUIRINGMINDS. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code INQUIRINGMINDS. One of the things that I find most annoying is when people start to say something like, well... Men's and women's brains are different, and they're different in these ways, and that relates to this kind of behavior. So we can explain the quirks of this one individual person on the basis of these gender differences in the brain. It's a really simplistic explanation, of course. And, you know, I don't get annoyed only when that makes, you know, throws the women under the bus. I get just as annoyed uh, when men, poor behavior by men is attributable to some kind of brain, you know, deficiency indicating that, you know, it's not, it's not their fault. It's just something wrong with their brains. And yet there is a lot of data showing that men and women's brains are structurally and functionally different. And also, of course, that their brains are in their bodies and that that relates to how disease expresses in their bodies. So I do think that this is an important field of study. So for this week, I interviewed Merrick Glazerman, who's Professor Emeritus of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Chairman of the Ethics Committee at the Sackler School of Medicine in Tel Aviv. He's also the President of the International Society for Gender Medicine and Director of the Research Center for Gender Medicine at the Rabin Medical Center. He's got a new book out called Gender Medicine, the Groundbreaking New Science of Gender and Sex-Based Diagnosis and Treatment. And, you know, let me say first off, this is not just about men's and women's brains are different. Uh, This is a much more nuanced conversation about how the differences in our bodies lead to different outcomes in diseases that for most of us think are not related to gender, like Alzheimer's disease, for example. Really, there's significant differences in even something as 
what I would consider gender neutral disease like Alzheimer's. Absolutely. And in fact, that was one of the things that made me sort of sit up and take notice when I when I first learned about the fact that for example, if a woman has the ApoE allele that is a risk uh, that, that increases risk for Alzheimer's disease, she only needs one of them in order to have an increase in risk, whereas a man needs two. So that means that this genetic difference affects women much more than men do, which is really odd, right? You'd think that you know, you'd have a, a similar effect on the basis of something that seems in some ways so gender neutral as just a bunch of you know, base pairs. But of course, our gender is in our DNA and is expressed and, you know, through our, our genes. So it's an interesting conundrum. And the problem, of course, and the reason that we're only finding this out now after decades of research on ApoE4 and on you know the, the basis of Alzheimer's disease is because the vast majority of research is done on animal models and they're animal models of male animals because male animals don't have periods. Oh, so they're just easier to conduct research with. Yeah, you don't have to worry about where they are in the estrus cycle and how, of course, hormones can influence uh, various aspects of a study. So it's much easier to have 10 or 12 male rats in your study than it is to have 10 or 12 female rats who may or may not be cycling at the same time. Uh, so, you know, there are practical reasons and there are political reasons. Um, but I think that the importance of doing this kind of research uh, on both female and male animal models and, of course, female and male humans is becoming more and more clear as we start to understand that, you know, what, what these traditionally gender neutral uh, diseases, I put that in air quotes, <laughs> um, are not at all gender neutral and have both different effects on men and women and different prognoses um, and possibly even different risk factors. Wow, I had no idea that this was even the case. And I'm sure this expands beyond um, neurological conditions, as we've talked about, then this must apply to like, heart disease, or even like liver disease, then. Yeah, and that was what was exciting for me, too, is to figure out, I mean, I, I know a, a tiny bit about the brain, and I'm, I'm more familiar with the effects there. But of course, there must be other effects on other parts of body, you know, beyond just our, the parts of our body that are very different. <laughs> I guess it's hard to talk about parts of your body that aren't different, given that, you know, your DNA is in every single one of your cells. So let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Merrick Laserman. This episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's was founded just two years ago and is already disrupting the shaving industry by offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. I also just learned that one of Harry's co-founders also co-founded Warby Parker, which is the brand of glasses I'm currently wearing. So there's that. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship them for free straight to your door. Harry's sent us some razors to try out, and I gotta say, they really are nice razors. And I can also honestly say that Kishore seems to be sort of in love with the set that they sent him. That starter set is just $15, which includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or Foaming Shave Gel. But as an added bonus to our listeners, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you use our coupon code, Inquiring Minds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Coupon code, Inquiring Minds. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Marek Glazerman. Hi. So this question of whether or not we can apply what we learn from male rats, for example, to female physiology is something that has been bothering me for a while. And it's clearly something that you have come across in your work. So can you tell us a little bit how you started thinking about this particular dilemma and what triggered you to look into it more deeply? Well, we always knew that there are more differences between men and women than uh, our reproductive organs. We have seen that in uh, at, uh, at the hospital. Uh, we have seen that by dealing with people. And actually, everybody who deals with the women and men um, understands intuitively that there are differences. But um, uh, practically, we have regarded women as uh, uh, small men. All research, which have, well, not all research, but uh, about 75% of research until this very day, is still being performed in men and not in women. And we kind of deduct from what we learn in men on women. Uh, this is not something entirely new. It happened uh, to the medical community about 200 years ago uh, regarding to children. We looked at children as small adults until we realize that not only the organs are smaller, but also they function differently. And uh, finally, we have come, to, uh, we have come at, the, at the understanding that uh, something similar happens now with women. So it was always there, but it was not very clear. And during the last decade, it became more and more clear and self-evident, actually. And I often think about that, you know, the reason for this is not that the medical community set out to ignore women, but rather that it became more practical in the lab to study animals that were male because they don't go through uh, hormonal changes of estrus. Uh, so that way you don't have to wait for particular times in the cycle in order to do your studies if the hormones have an effect. Is that an accurate depiction of the reason why we have had so much more research coming out of uh, male animals than female animals. Yes, absolutely. It is very correct. It's much easier to deal with the male research subject in the lab than with the female subject. Um, and also diseases which are typically for female animals are being evaluated and research is done on male animals because it's, it's much easier. And this happens also with uh, in human. Uh, there are additional reasons why uh, why research and clinical research in uh, in humans is more concentrated on men than in women. But what you just described concerning uh, animals is very correct. I mean, a man uh, research subject, a male research subject, um, is not bothered by the menstrual period. Uh, uh, he doesn't become pregnant, so it's much easier to deal with men. But there are additional reasons, actually, also. Uh, and what are those reasons? Well, uh, in the mid of the last century, uh, two huge catastrophes hit the medical world. One was related to treatment which was given to pregnant women because of bleeding. And this was a synthetic estrogen, DES. And as it appears, offspring of those uh, uh, women uh, had malignancies in their, in their reproductive organs. And the other catastrophe was related to treatment which was given against nausea to pregnant women, and this was thalidomide. And the uh, offspring uh, showed uh, severe deformations of their limbs. So I believe in 1977, uh, the FDA issued a strong recommendation to remove 
uh, women from clinical studies, phase two and phase three. <laughs> the intention was that women who were in their fertile age period should not participate in clinical trials because the risk of being pregnant or becoming pregnant during those clinical trials. But uh, as it appeared, the research community, the medical community, community embraced those recommendations and all of a sudden all women were removed from uh, clinical trials. And this was an additional reason. So, I mean, it sounds on the outset that it's a noble reason because we want to prevent the possibility of, of birth defects and suffering, obviously, in the children of, of these women. But what could we do in order to make that restriction perhaps not so strict? Uh, is there Should we be thinking about regulations in which um, maybe we set aside women who are of fertile age, although, of course, that probably gets rid of a lot of uh, potential patients uh, and, and, and participants. I mean, what do, you, what do you think is the right way to manage this problem? Well, the way was already uh, uh, being uh, used. I believe in 1986, the NIH uh, issued uh, recommendations to include women, to get women back into research. And the FDA revoked the original recommendation years later. And uh, the, the Institute for Women's Health was founded with huge uh, inv investments in funds just to get women back into research. But uh, it was very difficult to convince the research community to really do that. So regulators and uh, policymakers realized uh, soon after that this was not a recommendation which uh, makes sense. But it's still one of the reasons which somewhere is in the back of the minds of many people why women should not uh, participate. It doesn't make sense at all because women were also excluded from studies who were beyond their fertile period, like menopausal women. So I believe the real reason why we still have too few women in clinical research, there are two reasons. One is that it's much easier to do research on men still. And the other reason is, uh, we have to admit that too, that women are not too eager to participate in uh, clinical research for the same reasons why they were excluded half a century ago. So let's talk a little bit about what have been the outcomes then of this bias in medical research towards male subjects. And let's put aside for the moment the issues related to reproduction and you know, sort of the, the immediate consequences of gender. So let's start out with talking, say, for example, about something that I would think was not really related to gender, like cardiovascular health. Well, uh, cardiovascular health uh, uh, is a very, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very good example because uh, let's take heart attacks. Heart attacks, uh, you typically, th typically think uh, when you think about heart attack, you think about the middle-aged man with uh, uh, all of a sudden feels uh, intense pain in his left uh, part of his breast and chest and uh, this pain radiates into his shoulder, into his left arm and uh, I mean if he uh, experienced these, uh, this, this, uh, these symptoms um, and he uh, wants to end to, 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 to grab a cab to go to the hospital, the cab driver will already make the diagnosis, he probably has a heart attack. Now, you will find it very difficult to find a picture even of a woman with heart attacks. 
because it's so it's so uh, deeply rooted in our in our uh, perception that heart attacks are uh, a problem of men. Now, to an extent, this is true until the age when women enter their uh, menopause, and then it turns around, and then it turns around so much that today uh, cardiovascular disease uh, kills more women than all cancers uh, put together. Women are susceptible to heart attacks, to cardiovascular disease, at least as men, after the age of menopause. But still, if women come to, a, uh, to, uh, to the emergency room, they often present with different symptoms, and that's the problem. Often means about 20% of women who enter the emergency uh, ward with a heart attack will be misdiagnosed because the attack doesn't develop so fast as in the male. Secondly, the symptoms are very often not very uh, typical or classical, what is, thought, what is called classical, meaning that it, uh, it's not exactly uh, uh, left chest pain, it can be uh, sternal pain, I mean the middle of the chest. It does not necessarily radiate into the left uh, arm uh, or shoulder, but it does radiate into the uh, neck or the front of the face. Now, one in five women who comes with a heart attack to the emergency ward and has this types of symptom, she is very likely to be misdiagnosed and to be sent home with a wrong diagnosis, something very not, 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 not typical. Now, we know now for sure that the most important part of prognosis for treatment of heart attacks is the time between diagnosis and treatment. So if she is misdiagnosed and goes home with the wrong diagnosis, which she's four times more likely to be in such a situation as a man, this misunderstanding, let's call it that way, kills women. So do you think the solution is that we just need to run studies that are exclusive to women and somehow fund that more? Or do you think that there is a way in which we can expand uh, you know, studies that are already ongoing to include more women? Well, there are many, many studies ongoing. And there's many, from the, from the uh, research uh, point of view, there's much being done worldwide in this uh, respect. But not only the medical community, but also the population at large is still not sufficiently aware of those differences. We have, what we really have to do is not only research, but we have to do also something, something like bottom-up uh, approach. The uh, population has to be educated. Personnel in emergency wards has to be uh, educated. We have just to spread this knowledge that women and men may behave differently when they have heart attacks, and we need to be aware of that. So it's not only the research. And that's one of the reasons I think that your book is so important, uh, because it actually lays out these differences in a very accessible way. So I want to turn to the second one that caught my eye. Um, and it, I guess in some ways, maybe this was a little bit more predictable, because I do think that there is at least a stereotype of, you know, women having stomach issues and um, irritable bowel, for example, being more common in women. So let's talk about the gut and how even the microbiome differences between men and women uh, can lead to very different outcomes uh, with certain diseases and treatments. 
Yeah, that's really a fascinating issue. We have been thinking about uh, the gut as something very passive. When I was a medical student, student many, many years ago, we were taught that the gut is basically like a pipe where food get, goes through and the body takes what it needs and the rest leaves the body. Uh, we know now that the gut is a very, very complicated system including many, many different stations and organs and glands and many, many different uh, types and items and ingredients. Now, what we also know is that the gut, ha gut has his own brain. There are books which have been written about the gut and a plethora of articles which describe the second brain in the gut, which is a nervous system very similar to the central nervous system. But it works differently in men and women. The other point is the microbioma which you mentioned, these uh, huge amounts of microorganisms, of, mi uh, of uh, microbes, which we have in our body and with which we live in a symbiotic uh, way. They cannot without us and we cannot live without them. It's a common evolutionary unit. My organs include my liver and my bones and my skeleton and my brains, hopefully, but also my microbioma. It, it is regarded as an integral part of my uh, whole system. Now, these, um, as such, the microbioma, which, by the way, weighs about one and a half kilograms, which we carry around with us, and they are responsible for vitamin uh, uh, production and for our defense system and for many, many different procedures which happen within the, within, within the gut. They are different between men and, women, men and women, and they are also different along the menstrual cycle in women. And they, uh, they change according to what we eat and when we eat. So we have two different systems here. Uh, the other point is that our gut functions also differently. Whatever we take into our mouth stays in our gastrointestinal system twice as long if we are women than if we are men. Now think, what that, think about what that means in terms of uh, a resorption of uh, medications. Or what, that, what does that mean about the way we eat? We hear a lot of, about what we eat and how we eat, uh, but we don't talk too much about when we eat. If everything which we eat stays uh, double the time in the system of a woman than of a man, perhaps she should eat twice a day, and he should eat perhaps four times a day in order to arrive at the same, uh, uh, at the same end. So this is something which is really a, a, a central point in research concerning the differences between men and women, and a lot can be said about that. So that's a really interesting example, this sort of timeline of absorption of food. So what about perception or, or uh, of I guess, experience of pain. Uh, that seems another oft-talked-about topic between men and women. And is there any evidence that men and women experience pain in different ways? And if so, how do we measure that objectively, since pain seems to be such a subjective phenomenon? Yes, you're right. Uh, pain is, uh, well, if we, in medicine we deal with, with, with saving lives, with the prolonging lives, and uh, with the quality of life. And one of the important parts of quality in life, in life, of life is pain. Problem is we cannot measure pain objectively, but we have to rely on what the patient tells us. 
and, and this is a problem with the very uh, with children with the with very with the very elderly with if we have cognitive uh, problems or, or so we have to rely on something which is very subjective yes there are ways experimentally to measure pains and what is done usually one uh, uh, puts his elbow for example into uh, water of different uh, uh, temperatures and then uh, uh, the, the research subject is asked about how long he can sustain that and uh, when he can no longer then this is the pain threshold. Now usually people believe that the pain threshold in women is higher than in men meaning that they can sustain pain better than men. Uh, and people believe that because uh, women are those who give birth which is uh, a painful experience and uh, men have uh, no idea how it works and if women can sustain that, that means that they have a higher pressure, uh, threshold. Experimentally, this is not true. Women have a lower threshold. But the thing is that women have learned to cope better with pain than men. And this is also something which uh, uh, one can uh, uh, measure. Yes, women experience pain differently. Women uh, have uh, a lower threshold to pain than men. Women react to analgetics differently and to different analgetics differently than men. And pain in women is something different than pain in men. It's a really interesting question because I feel as if, let's say you do have a lower threshold for pain, that doesn't necessarily mean you aren't feeling uh, the same amount of pain, right? So, you know, the example I give is, let's say you have, you know, two women who are about to give birth and one of them, you know, is doing it without the aid of any drugs or what have you, and her pain gets ramped up very gradually. And then you have another woman who, say, maybe is going through an induction, and she goes from having no pain to a very high amount of pain. And then uh, it, it seems that in that case, since pain can sort of, you can sort of kind of habituate to pain after a while, that that second woman, even if the objective measure of how much pain she's feeling is not as great, that jump would be you know, it, more taxing on the body. I sort of think about it that way. Is that is that an accurate way to think about pain? And if so, does that mean that if a woman has a lower threshold, she still might be experiencing a greater sensitivity or, or perception of the pain? Yeah, well, to an extent, yes. The dif it's a difference between experiencing pain and coping with pain. Two people can experience the same level of pain or let's say experimentally being exposed to the same pain inducer but one can cope better than the other and coping is something which you first of all learn secondly you can train it now very interesting interestingly management of pain in the uh, now in the latest years is uh, has has uh, been shifted towards trying uh, all the time to reduce the intensity of pain and uh, instead of that, or in addition, to help people cope with pain. This is uh, specifically, uh, specifically true for uh, oncological pain, for patients who receive cancer treatment and uh, of all kinds, which can be uh, or have pains uh, due to cancer. What we know now is when, when somebody experiences chronic pain, then first of all, the areas in the brain who become active are those who deal with pain, like we always knew. But uh, soon thereafter, there are areas in the brain who become active 
which are not involved with pain modulation at all, but with coping. So this means if you get your patient to be involved in the pain treatment and you teach him to live with his pain to an extent and to cope and to learn coping mechanisms, he will be much more likely to combat pain than somebody who uh, just get, receives treatment to, for reducing the intensity of pain. So we're entering an era now in which medicine is becoming more and more personalized. And sometimes one of the things that bothers me when people talk about the differences between genders is that, of course, things aren't so black and white. Uh, for one thing, there are a lot of people who don't necessarily identify with their chromosomal gender assignation, so biological gender or sex, I should say, depending on the terminology. And also, of course, there are a lot of overlap between the distributions of even if we just stick to males and females as, you know, two separate distributions, there's still a lot of overlap. So how should we approach this issue of, you know, potentially engendering bigger stereotypes as we go and have exclusive studies for men and women, or even uh, excluding individuals who don't necessarily, you know, identify one way or another? Well, deciphering the genome, uh the analysis uh, of our body at a cellular and molecular level has been a huge, huge achievement, which uh, has seemingly unlimited potentials. And um, that is why I'm often asked uh, this question, whether gender medicine um, is not mainly a step towards uh, personalized medicine and will disappear once personalized medicine uh, becomes fully available. Uh, indeed, what is the need of gender-based medicine if we can provide tailor-made treatment uh, to everybody and uh, does not age and gender and sex, of course, become totally ir uh, irrelevant to that stage. Totally superfluous. Well, I believe that is pure utopia. First of all, most illnesses uh, are not caused by genetic factors exclusively. We have the environment, we have nutrition, we have lifestyle, there are accidents, interactions, between uh, many factors, uh, all of those uh, affect health and uh, disease. And even the difference in health and disease between men and women is not only genetically and hardwired, but uh, is uh, many faceted. And actually, this is also what uh, my book is all about. The next uh, point here is that uh, new technologies are not always and not necessarily, necessarily accessible. Uh, to everybody. Just think about uh, insulin, antibiotics, which have been around almost a century, and still there are millions of people who uh, die annually uh, because they have no access to those uh, technologies, which are for a long time not uh, considered new technologies. And there are, of course, ethical considerations and how to handle sensitive information and who owns that information retrieved uh, after deciphering the human uh, genome. I believe that medical technology is just that, medical technology. It cannot replace the patient-doctor encounter. Within this encounter between the physician and uh, 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 the patient, there are many, many other issues which uh, uh, have to be considered and which are at stake the value system of the patients, his or her preferences, lifestyle, habits, the environment in which the patient lives. We have to look into the patient and talk to the patient in order to arrive at a more 
uh, how do we should call it, the holistic view. Views, of course, uh, much medical technology, and uh, but this will not replace everything else. So we cannot really compare a technology like personalized medicine and gender medicine, which is actually no technology at all. It's to look from a different angle at our patient and take into account many, many different uh, uh, issues, and amongst those, also the sex of the patient. Well, uh, if I think about this uh, apparent contradiction, uh, contraposition between gender medicine and uh, uh, personalized medicine, the analogy which pops into my mind is a comparison between walking and driving. On one hand, riding a car, a train, or flying in a plane is a really huge enrichment of man's capabilities to broaden his or her world, to cover long distances. It has advantages, it has also disadvantages and risks. On the other hand, walking is a basic skill to get from one place to another and cannot be in competition with flying or driving. So both complement each other, perhaps even Perhaps one is even a potential extension of the other, but uh, uh, personalized medicine will not replace, replace gender-based medicine, which is uh, here to stay, actually. Well, I think that's a great time for me then to recommend your book, Gender Medicine, The Groundbreaking New Science of Sex-Related Diagnosis and Treatment, uh, to our listeners. I found it very interesting and insightful, and I learned a lot. So thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. Do we need to change this? It seems like we've been doing things in a way that has led to better outcomes overall. Uh, do we need to change how research is done to account for this difference at all? Well, I certainly think we have to focus in on research where there are big holes. Uh, and I think sometimes just saying, well, this disease hasn't been well studied uh, is not enough. We have to think about, you know, how well has this disease been studied in both genders? Because, you know, especially something like cardiovascular disease, where, you know, for one thing, we do have to educate the public, too, because I had no idea that cardiovascular disease was a bigger problem for women than for men after a certain age. I mean, I, you know, that was that was shocking to me. I always think of it as a male disease. <laughs> um, Just another reason to look forward to menopause. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, I, I, I do think that we have to, there have to be some changes that are implemented, uh, given especially to, you know, if you have a difference in terms of the proportions of genders of different ages you know if they're if women are going to be living longer than men and they're going to be a bigger burden on society because of the health declines that they see in older age then it benefits everyone to figure out how we can stave off some of those uh, declines and improve their health outcomes so, you know I don't think this is just something that women need to worry about you know I think this is something that society needs to worry about and given that we're learning all this new stuff about how gender is different and there's so little research that's being done you know, exclusively on women, yeah, something needs to change. It seems to be that just status quo, you know, is, is not going to be good enough. I mean, you could argue that the market is going to change and therefore, you know, there's going to be impetus by the pharmaceutical companies and, you know, by biotech startup companies to move more into this space since that's where their potential customers are going to be. But, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's going to be enough of an incentive given 
how the model works where, you know, you have to publish data, you have to get FDA approved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if it's easier to do that on a bunch of animals that are male and not cycling, you know, it still, it still seems to me that there might, there have to be policy changes implemented in order for um, the, all this, the, the science to move in the right direction. It seems so much more expensive if you're going to go this route as well and expensive both in the amount of time it takes to conduct that research because your control on animal models is going to just take more time, uh, which is money. And um, frankly, it's a new field. So there's going to be a lot more scrutiny at at the outset on some of this uh, type of research. Do you ever see it happening? You know, it, it might be it might seem more expensive now because we haven't done it, but think about how much it could potentially benefit if we figure out, you know, how to change some of the outcomes in these diseases in such lar- a large swath of population. We're not talking about, you know, we're talking about 50% or, you know, give or take a few percentage points, depending on where you are, of the population, right, that are affected by this. So it's not like it's a minority of people. And I also think that if you put the incentives in place, then people will find workarounds on, on maybe they'll find more efficient animal models. Maybe they'll figure out how to, you know, get over the cycling problem. Maybe it's a matter of, you know, having some kind of a birth control pill that you put your animals on or that, that keeps them in one part of their cycle, if that's really the issue. Um, or maybe the cycle is actually an important thing to keep in mind when we're trying to figure out how these diseases are affected by gender. And um, so, you know, I think that it's it's just kind of a, a bit of a cop-out to say, oh, it's harder and it's more expensive. Um, it might be, but it also could be potentially much more beneficial than, you know, continuing to just do research on a line of animals that are very different from the final outcome that you're going to try to apply this on. For things to change, both there has to be a political will, but there has to be broad understanding that this issue is a significant one amongst the community of researchers. What's your impression of how well the community appreciates that this is an issue? Yeah, I think this is still kind of fringe. I mean, I think that there aren't, for example, any clinics that I know that separate men and women uh, in terms of you know, their gender for anything other than, you know, obstetrics and gynecology. Uh, and maybe there should be, maybe there should be a men's clinic in neurology and a women's clinic in neurology. Um, and, and same thing for GI and, and so forth. And different specializations fought by physicians for the different genders. I mean, I, you know, we're talking about personalized medicine and we talk about how we're going to use our DNA, but like, you know, maybe one place to start is just gender, right? It sounds so obvious, but I agree that this is not uh, an issue that is appreciated by a large uh, part of the population. And I think books like Merrick's uh, are going to, you know, push that forward. Although, you know, I, I hope that it gets the press that it deserves because I felt actually it was a it was it was a well written, easily accessible book, um, sort of based on a series of lectures that he had given. So it's easy to read, and yet it is packed full of information. So hopefully that's a start in the right direction. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Brendan Ryan. Thank you so much. 
You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, ideas for animal models that look at gender differences and all kinds of diseases, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Gian. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.